and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, is new technology making conventional military assets less relevant. And I'm joined now by the author of the historical background during this issue, Andrew Roberts, honorary senior scholar at Keyes College, Cambridge, fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Hello. Okay, so the question posed in this issue of Strategica, are conventional 20th century style military assets becoming less relevant in an age of drones, cyber warfare, high technology essentially. And your answer to this question, quoting you here from your piece, the witness of history is so uniform that it needs to become a general law of warfare. The war we expect and plan for is never the one we're called upon to fight. Okay, so the purpose of this piece is to put this issue into historical context. So let's go into some of the examples of this in the past. Uh, let's start as far back as you go in this piece with Napoleon. What did what did he get wrong? What was he expecting that didn't occur in his campaigns? Well, his um, uh, classic campaign, as far as the disaster was concerned, was obviously that of Russia in 1812, where what he wanted to do was to refight the same war that he had fought successfully against the Austrians three times, the Russians twice, um, the Prussians as well, which was a, uh, a, a basically a, a massive, big, a Clausewitzian um, decisive battle, preferably on the borders or near the borders, uh, after which he could then go and capture the capital and impose a, um, a, a, a peace, uh, make the enemy sue for peace. And he thought he could do that again in 1812, even though in Spain in 1808, the uh, Spanish had uh, avoided the decisive battles. They'd lost actually every, every major battle that they fought and had given up their, um, their capital, Madrid, and still hadn't made peace, started a guerrilla campaign. And he hadn't learned from that, and instead he was sucked further and further into the center of Russia, uh, into Moscow, which he captured, but again, uh, without a decisive battle. The Battle of Borodino was uh, was a, a very bloody affair, but it wasn't decisive. And so he actually wound up fighting a different campaign, a different war, than the one he had intended to and hoped to. And as a result, he uh, he well, it cost him his throne, ultimately. Now, the next example, turning to the British, you point to a couple of examples in Africa, the Anglo-Zulu War and the Boer Wars. What were the misapprehensions about technology there? Well, they assumed that the uh, possession of the machine gun in the latter case, but also the Martini Henry rifle in the former case, would just win it for for them over, overnight. It was uh, clear that a uh, that a, a Western force with um, uh, with superior technology uh, and 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 pretty significant numbers as well would uh, would basically walk it in both cases. But in neither case was that the case. Of course, the um, both wars were ultimately won by the British Empire, but not before they were given. Uh, the British were given an extremely bloody nose at uh, the Battle of Isandlwana in January 1879, and uh, in the Black Week by the Boers in. Uh, in the December of 1899. So in both of those cases, it was an assumption that they were going to be able to pull off the kind of uh, punitive expedition that they had so successfully done 
all around the um, whole continent of Africa virtually um, over the previous uh, 20, 30 years. And, uh, and that wasn't the case. For much the same reason, it must be pointed out, as, uh, as Napoleon. The fact was the, uh, the opposition, the enemy, uh, learns from what has happened before and determines not to allow the same thing to happen again. Is that the is that the common thread you think in these cases where uh, we see the sort of misunderstanding, uh, particularly with people who have the technological advantage, that they sort of extrapolate out in a straight line and don't don't account for the reaction? Well, the cliche, of course, is that everybody fights the the last war rather than the coming war, and even though an enormous amount of thought and uh, and and proper intellectual effort is put into trying to work out what the next war is going to be, uh, simply because it is in the interests of the uh, of the enemy not to fight the kind of war that is expected, you see again and again the um, the phenomenon of. Um, of the unexpected, and of course, the unexpected is always going to be the uh, the key figure in uh, in any war, anyway, because uh, it's that one aspect of human nature that can't be accounted for. I think there's a marvelous line um, that uh, Paul Wolf of it said, uh, which was that um, uh, surprise happens so often in history that it's surprising that we're still still surprised by it, <laughs> and that uh, and that's clearly the case. Okay, now continuing to move through some of these historical examples, um, Andrew, World War One. the famous phrase, it, w- it was supposed to be over by Christmas, and it wasn't, of course, and that had at least something to do with assumptions about technology. What happened there? Well, there too, of course, the machine gun, rather like the, uh, the in the Boer War, um, actually, <laughs> in fact, sorry, in the opposite case of the Boer War, the assumption was that the machine gun was going to was going to win it uh, overnight, virtually, for uh, for the British in the uh, in the Boer War. In the um, in the First World War, they, not enough um, not enough concentration was placed on this amazing machine, which certainly in the 15 years in between those two wars did get much more efficient and much much more efficient than it had been in the 1870s when the French. Um, uh, were hoping to use it successfully. This um, this piece of technology really was um, utterly dominant on the Western Front, uh, along with barbed wire, of course, and trenches, and uh, and all the other um, uh, all the other paraphernalia in that ghastly ghastly conflict. But um, but the idea that a war is going to be over by Christmas, even though you're fighting against an extremely um, highly sophisticated and developed. Um, uh, nation in arms, such as the uh, such as the Germans, with their Prussian general staff of immense efficiency, uh, was uh, was superbly, amazingly, ridiculously hubristic. And um, I mean, if anybody was going to win that war by Christmas, it was going to be the Germans, knocking the French out and uh, capturing Paris. What's interesting is that all the examples that we've talked about so far, and most of the examples in the piece are representative of excessive optimism, excessive confidence in the abilities and the resources of one side. By contrast, you talk about in the piece with World War II an example of maybe excess pessimism where you cite Prime Minister Baldwin telling the House of Commons in uh, 1932, I believe, that the the next war could wipe out European civilization because of the power of bombers. It seems to have overstated the case. So where did the analysis go amiss there? Yes, the great line that he came out with in the House of Commons was the, the bomber will always get through. 
And um, and this did absolutely uh, terrify the chiefs of staff and uh, local planners in London before the war broke out, uh, put hundreds of thousands of cardboard coffins, makeshift coffins by, uh, because they thought that the population of London was going to be virtually wiped out by the bomber. They'd seen what had happened at Guernica and um, in various other towns of the Spanish Civil War that had been hit by the um, by the German Condor Legion. And what they hadn't factored in was that um, the Spanish Republicans, first of all, had no uh, anti-aircraft um, precautions. They had very few anti-aircraft guns. They didn't have deep shelters. And, uh, and they didn't have a, a particularly effective air force that could shoot down these bombers. So they extrapolated from entirely... Uh, incorrect premises, the numbers of people that were going to be uh, killed in in London in the opening weeks of the Second World War. And uh, instead of the many hundreds of thousands that they all assumed would be, in fact, between 55 and 60,000 people were killed in the entire country uh, throughout the whole of the six years of the Second World War. Now, obviously, that's an awful lot of people and a total tragedy. But it's not a war-changing, it's not a war-changing number in the way that you know, four or five hundred thousand would have been. Right. So having looked at these historical examples, let's take it to the present day, to the technologies that we're talking about in this issue of Strategica. You make it clear in your piece that it's a mistake to extrapolate out in a straight line. And you write, quoting you here, the assumption that the next conflicts will be all about drones, satellites, and cyber warfare, let alone decided by them rests on the shaky basis that human ingenuity will not come up with new ways of shooting down drones, neutralizing satellites, and countering cyber attacks. Same dynamic we talked about a moment ago. But there is a distinction here, I note, in your writing between technology and and tactics because you also write with counterinsurgency, the story might be different. So why? Why is counterinsurgency perhaps primed for more relevance than some of these technologies that we've just identified? Well, for the simple reason that it's been uh, counterinsurgency again and again that seems to have um, got beyond the uh, technological and to have won um, in conflicts that that, uh, the other powers, that the enemy powers, that the much more powerful um, conventional uh, warfare powers uh, never expected when... um, I mean, you're an American. You will know that in 1776, uh, my country had no intention of losing that war against right. a, a bunch of effectively of, of irregulars and uh, and you know farmers. Uh, same with the Boer War. Same with the Vietnam War. Um, same. Uh, to an extent with um, with the war that's going on in Afghanistan, although I hasten to add you certainly haven't uh, lost that. But nonetheless, uh, the West hasn't lost that, I mean. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there seems to be a... Um, and, and also, to, to go back to our original premise, the Spanish war against uh, Napoleon, in which the term guerrilla first... Uh, first was used. Right. And um, it, so it seems to be the sort of... Um, uh, the, the joker in the pack, effectively. Um, it's something that maybe would be capable of, um, because it's all to do with the morale of the, uh, of the insurgent forces and, um, and their ability to, to strike, and certainly, of course, in modern parallel, strike with suicide bombers that can, uh, that can basically upset the, um, the whole um, dynamic. And I noticed this comes out in Frederick Kagan's inter- um, article in the same issues of uh, Strategica that uh, that I wrote in. Um, he uh, he makes this point very 
uh, powerfully. And it's also, of course, something that Max Boot in his excellent book, Invisible Armies, um, underlines, is that basically when it comes to guerrilla warfare, all bets are off. Um, it, it doesn't matter how many um, uh, how many tanks you have, if the uh, if the local population is uh, is up in arms against you and will not stop fighting. Well, would it be fair to say that in some senses the the nations with advanced technological capabilities are, uh, in a way, sort of seeding the the seeding s e e d i n g. Um, the field for this because if you are an inferior power in terms of your military capabilities faced with this kind of high technology, sort of the logical thing to do, the only thing that really levels the playing field is to go down to the counterinsurgency level. Precisely, precisely. There is no way that large, as, as Kagan points out in this uh, essay that I'm mentioning um, in Strategica, if there is no way that um, one can attack the West conventionally with uh, with sort of armored columns because they will be taken out in a matter of right. minutes by the west's superior air power uh, however um, bombs going off in uh, in railway stations and discotheques and uh, various other you know uh, public places in the west can effectively um, can effectively demoralize uh, a, um, a a country as successfully as military de- defeat on the battlefield almost um, and we and we obviously seeing that we're seeing that a lot um, since nine eleven, so right. it's um, it is it is an it is an altered state, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should give up being that being the most powerful uh, countries with the best um, with the best air power because were anybody else and I'm thinking in particular obviously of China in this case were anybody else to supplant the, um, uh, the NATO America and the West um, with uh, conventional technology, then you would be in the double bind of, of, um, of being weaker and less um, capable of defending yourself. Well, that brings us nicely to my final question for you, which is we've just had this grand historical overview from Napoleon to the present day. You and I have both probably been in enough rooms with enough policymakers to know that their eyes might glaze over at the, at the historical discussion. So for people who just want the bottom line, the implications for you know, modern security policy, what are, what are their action items? If you're laying out this case for an American national security policymaker, what does it mean for how the United States should conduct itself now and in the future? It basically means, and it's not just the United States, it's also true, I think, of, uh, of Britain and other countries that want right. to be taken in any way seriously uh, in a, uh, to have a capacity for acting in its own interests abroad and to project force beyond its own, um, uh, beyond its own limits, which, uh, which fewer and fewer countries are interested in, but, um, but those that are, um, in the West at least, need to spend an awful lot more money than they're spending at the moment. They also need not just to concentrate on what they think will be the next war, uh, but on every possible outcome for what um, could be the next war. So uh, yes, you do need tanks and ships and uh, and uh, and planes, as well as drones and uh, and all the modern technology. You need to have a, a, a historical and nothing historical um, analysis to appreciate that because we can't tell what the next war is going to be like, we simply can't. However clever we are, however much we can look forward into the, into the crystal ball, you know, we can be pretty sure that we will get it wrong. And so the only thing that will make us safe, properly safe and secure, is to keep all options open and to, uh, and to keep all cards on the table and therefore to spend money on all aspects of defense.
Our guest has been Andrew Roberts, Honorary Senior Scholar at Keyes College, Cambridge, Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. I much enjoyed it. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.